Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 9th of March, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands and our nursing correspondent, Debbie Evans. Uh, well, we'll get straight on with uh, events in Parliament uh, yesterday. So uh, let's put this on screen, this tweet saying, first time in history, a foreign leader was allowed to address both houses of Parliament in the British Parliament, uh, proud that this leader was the president of the Ukraine, uh, Zelensky. Um, so what do we say about that? Uh, well, I found the whole thing utterly disgusting and offensive, uh, Mike. I found it offensive the way uh, the thing was staged. I found the response of the MPs offensive, as we're going to see. But also for this um, actor to come into our parliament and be quoting um, uh, be quoting historical literature, Alice, was just too much for me. Well, why don't we have a look at it? Yeah. Best of yeah. all to Ukraine and uh, to the United Kingdom. Mr. Well, there we are, packed, uh, the clapping, the standing ovation, but packed. That parliament was packed in order to watch a man on the TV screen. What did he say? Let's listen to at least part of what he said to the audience. We have to fight the helicopters, rockets. Uh, the question for us now is to be or not to be. Oh no, this is Shakespearean question. For 13 days, this question uh, could have been asked. But now I can give you a definitive answer. It's definitely yes to be. Um, and I would like to remind you the words that the United Kingdom have already heard, uh, which are important again. We will not give up and we will not lose. We will fight till the end at sea, in the air, we will continue fighting for our land, whatever the cost. We will fight in the forests, in the fields, on the shores, in the streets. Well, I've got to say again, I find this um, totally offensive that this man comes in in his combat t-shirt, this is all carefully staged, and he's going to pretend to the packed audience in West, Westminster uh, that he's a new version of Churchill. Just utterly disgusting, Mike. Yes, and uh, before we move on to the next uh, little video clip, I was just uh, wondering, Alex, if we could bring you on the programme, uh, what did you think of the simultaneous translation? You're not the only one to have spotted that, Mike. Uh, I will not uh, drop my uh, professional colleagues uh, in the deep end by uh, by completely castigating the man, but I will say that if Zelensky had spoken his native language, Russian, you would have had a hundred times greater pool of interpreters to choose from, uh, and also um, the technical arrangements, the relative volume of Zelensky speaking in the original Ukrainian um, is, is not 
well optimized. I know that they're in a, a war situation, uh, but nobody's thought properly about booking a good agency. So again, third rate stuff, not done through the proper diplomatic channels and probably a bad agency approach, as usually happens with the British government. Uh, but the key thing there, Brian, was an absolutely packed house for it. Yes, the um, Westminster there, full to the gunnels, to use the use the uh, military expression, marine military expression. It was a packed house uh, for that man to spiel his propaganda. Now watch what happens when a very brave Tory MP, Christopher Chope, uh, MP, tried to speak to the House on the 2nd of March this year about uh, deaths from vaccines. Watch this clip very closely. The vaccine damage payment scheme was extended to cover COVID-19 vaccinations in recognition of the potential importance of this issue. And I'm delighted that the Prime Minister also clearly believes it is an important issue. On the 11th of August last year, he wrote to Kate Scott, whose husband Jamie a fit 44-year-old software engineer spent 124 days in hospital following severe brain injury caused by the vaccine. The Prime Minister said, referring to Kate's husband Jamie and his family from Warwickshire, you're not a statistic and must not be ignored. The Prime Minister went on to thank Kate Scott for her suggested changes to the vaccine damage payment scheme and promised that the government would consider the case for reform. Why then, Mr Deputy Speaker, is there no tangible evidence of the government having done anything in the six months since the Prime Minister said those words? It has repeatedly blocked my COVID-19 vaccine damage bill, which was briefly debated in this House on the 10th of September. Why has the government not even uprated the £120,000 payment under the scheme to take account of inflation since 2007, when it was last reviewed? On this basis, the maximum should now be over £177,000. Why have no payments yet been made under the scheme, even where a full inquest has established that the vaccine was the cause of death? That, sadly, is the situation of Lisa Shaw's family. The 44-year-old BBC Radio Newcastle presenter died from a brain hemorrhage confirmed by a coroner in August as having been caused by the AstraZeneca vaccine, as reported in the Sunday Telegraph on the 5th of December 2021. Another case about which somebody has written to me was... So there you have it, when an MP stands up to talk about the deaths of individuals as a result of this uh, pernicious vaccine programme in UK, not only are there no MPs or virtually no MPs in, in the chamber there, when he's talking about the actual deaths of individuals, more of them get up and leave. But when we're talking about the situation in Ukraine and we have a man in his T-shirt claiming uh, to tell us what is happening in his country, uh, the house is packed. Mike, I, I've run out of um, I've run out of adjectives with the, these people. Utterly duplicitous, hypocritical. They are just appalling people. We need a complete change of MPs. This is clear. I think that's right. Uh, yes. Right. Well, let's let's move on to the, seri the, the serious stuff with regard to Ukraine. We have to go to the mail because the reports on this have been very 
few and far between. Uh, but here is the mail claiming that uh, this is Russia's latest false flag. Moscow accuses US of helping Ukraine with illegal bioweapons research on black death, anthrax, rabbit fever in, quote, frenzy of allegations to galvanize domestic support for Putin's war and justify invasion. Now, if we get into this article, um, it's very, very poorly written, and we're going to just pull a little bit of it apart. But first of all, who wrote it? Uh, well, one of the journalists is this young man, Adam Mano. Um, he's been with the Daily Mail for a matter of months, nine months. And before that, he's with the Charleston City paper. So this is effectively a trainee uh, who has been in charge of an article uh, reporting on biolabs and bioweapons in a very complex war zone. This is just crass stuff from the Daily Mail. Uh, slightly more senior journalist here, Will Stewart, with him. But overall, this article was woefully inadequate team reporting on bioweapons. And um, how, how can they really justify it? Well, I don't know. So this is what they said. Russia is accusing the US of using Ukraine to carry out illegal bioweapons biological weapons research on deadly viruses, including Black Death in the latest round of, quote, misinformation. But of course, the Daily Mail didn't investigate any of the really in-depth information on this subject. So this is a spin piece. An operation was carried out last month. It's talking about the Russian operation in Ukraine to destroy stocks of especially dangerous pathogenic agents, the plague, anthrax, Tiller, uh, rabbit fever, cholera, and other lethal diseases. Uh, Moscow alleges. So this is all supposition and nonsense, according to the mail. But of course, they don't bother to investigate it at all. On it goes, the bioweapons program, which would flout international law, was allegedly held close to the Russian border. The pathogens were supposedly destroyed by Ukraine so that Vladimir Putin's invaders would not find evidence of their existence. Well, this is spin. Uh, this is the latest in a frenzy of scare stories uh, receiving major coverage in Russian media. Well, no, because, of course, there are hundreds of thousands of people in the West who are deeply worried about this subject. But note the Daily Mail's misleading inference here that a biolab is unlikely because it would flout international law. We never see international law being broken by the West. No, it never like happens. At all. No, no. And uh, if we go through, Russia's been laying the groundwork for such claims quite, a, quite some time, according to Foreign Policy magazine. In January, a Russian-language telegram account warned of the full-fledged network of biological laboratories has been deployed with American grants to study deadly viruses. Now we've got some fact coming up, and note that it's talking about making people sick in Kazakhstan. This is very interesting stuff. Um, in May 2020, the Russian newspaper Investia made similar claims and a close advisor to Putin accused the US last year of developing more and more biological laboratories. So this is not a sudden thing. This is something that has been warned about for some time. But of course, the Daily Mail has done no research into it. There's no proper investigative journalism. But if you click on the foreign policy uh, link, then you come to another dismissal without any evidence of the subject. This is the journalist who did the foreign policy one. Uh, and if we look into his background, he's very popular with all the mainstream media as an um, independent, so-called independent journalist. So presumably he's going to be telling them what they want to hear to get his copyright, uh, 
his uh, copy fees for that article being published. Maybe I'm wrong, but this is the way it seems to me. And so it goes on to say that the biological weapons research is the latest false flag orchestrated by Russia since it announced a special military operation, etc. And then it goes on to say, um, to demilitarize and denazify its neighbor whose president, Zelensky, is Jewish. Now, this is, this is more misleading inference. I'm just going to ask Alex to come in here because effectively what the Daily Mail is trying to put in the minds of its reader is because he's Jewish, he can't be supporting Nazis when the reality on the ground suggests something very different. Um, Alex, I know you've got some comments on uh, some of the... Uh, documents in the Russian language that were in the Mail article, but this whole Daily Mail report is very, I think it's unbelievably childish. There's no investigative journalism, and yet what the Russians are now saying is so unbelievably serious. It's not for nothing, Brian, that the junior editor at the New York desk, who was hauled up from a South Carolina title recently, has been told to uh, focus on Foreign Policy magazine, because in the States, that's the top of the tree for setting the oligarchic Western line on foreign policy. It's very closely linked with the Council on Foreign Relations, which, of course, is the American junior branch of Chatham House. The Ameri Americans are, in this regard, junior. Chatham House in London, founded by Cecil Rhodes and his clique, is the top dog. So we're talking oligarchic foreign policy here set above the level of governments. And that has been lifted lock, stock and barrel into the piece. Yes, Zelensky is, as I hinted a moment ago, a native speaker of Russian, which is typical not just for people of his own Jewish ethnicity, but all kinds of people in eastern and southern Ukraine. And Zelensky did start out as a moderately pro-Russian, sensibly pro-Russian person, like a lot of people in his zone of the country. But as we'll see later in the news, he was perhaps intimidated away from that stance, having been elected in 2019 on a promise of reconciliation between the ethnic and linguistic blocs in Ukraine. He may have had his arm twisted, Zelensky. So uh, there's a lot going on there. But yes, I know the question at the moment is, is it all Zionism? Uh, how can Israel be supporting neo-Nazis? It's perfectly possible in, in the bear pit of the Ukraine. Uh, you just need to look a bit more deeply as to what strands of people, including what strands of Judaism and Zionism, are at war with each other, quite literally now, over that territory and over the ideology. Um, Alex, uh, the, the other thing that struck me about that mail article was the use of the term false flag. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but a false flag is where uh, one country carries out some kind of operation and then makes it look as if another country has carried out that, that operation. Uh, there, there's no suggestion in the mail article that these biolabs were the Russians setting up biolabs and then pretending that it was Americans that had done it. It's this is this at the very you know the very worst allegation that you could make against this uh, is that it's some kind of mis or disinformation, which of course it isn't. But but that seems to me that that's that's the the biggest challenge that could be made of it by the Western media. So calling it a false flag is a misnomer. I thought you might mention the parallel term disinformation, Mike, because false flag as a term now has gone the way of disinformation. In the last couple of years, it has been weaponized and hollowed out and denuded of its meaning. Both of these terms throughout the 20th century originated in the Soviet bloc and the other communist countries. Romania played a large part in it. And uh, they both meant use, trying to pin what you do or say 
on an enemy. If it's something you do that you pin on an enemy, it's a false flag. If it's something that you say and try to put it in the, the mouth of an adversary spokesman to give it credibility to your adversary, then that's called disinformation. Both of these terms simply now mean things we don't like and have very little meaning, perhaps no more meaning than the idea of hate speech. Yes. OK, thank you for that. Alex, just tell us a little bit about the documents that the uh, Mail article included, certainly in the online version, because we had some uh, documents which appeared to be in Russian. They're actually in Ukrainian, Brian. And if people go to the Daily Mail piece itself, they will find not the one that's on screen, but they'll find two other documents which uh, have, to me, prima facie the appearance of authenticity. Of course, no journalist or commentator in a wartime situation is going to say, I'm sure these are genuine documents. They read properly in Ukrainian. They are by si signed and dated by named individuals in the Ukrainian Public Health Ministry. Uh, the one that the Daily Mail has, which isn't uh, on screen at the moment, is signed by uh, three laboratory workers headed by Nadia Kushka and, uh, and confirms that as per Ex Executive Order 64 of 2022, on the 24th of uh, February, the day of the invasion, um, they have uh, ob obeyed that order to destroy samples. And the list given there in the Daily Mail uh, has a Latin script list of, uh, of what they destroyed. And people can read that if they know the Latin names for the bacteria. These are mostly strands of diphtheria, uh, Staphylococcus, um, E. coli uh, and the like, pneumonia, right? So not sort of the real shockers, not this, the stuff that is only uh, researched for uh, weaponization, such as tularemia, which was mentioned by the Russian MOD briefer as one of the things that the Russians had found. That isn't mentioned in lists I found. But what you can put on screen now has been circulating separately, admittedly from Russian sources, such as the Kremlin-aligned RIA Novosti. But again, uh, it's it's proper Ukrainian. It's not dated. It may have been signed in a hurry. You can see it in bold type on the left-hand side at the bottom. Health Minister Viktor Lyashko has signed it. This one is getting a little more intriguing or shocking because the, the bacteria here, not that I'm a specialist, but I know something about it from my CBRN days, include the likes of Klebsiella pneumonia, Candida albicans, various kinds of Corinibacterium, um, Enterobacter aerogenes. Um, some of these are pretty uh, bad. I, I, I see also here Pseudomona neruginosa, which I think is only there for weaponization purposes, as far as I know. I'm very willing to be corrected, but it's a good list. Good, well, good list. It's, it's a fairly comprehensive list of what the health ministry in its various laboratory locations is confirming it was ordered to destroy the day that the Russians arrived. Um, Alex, thank you very much for that. I'd like to just bring in um, Debbie Evans, because Debbie's investigations into matters to do with labs ultimately led her to be having a look at Ukraine. But just for the purposes of the news today, Debbie, um, just tell us a little bit about the documentation you've seen, the graphic overviews of the proliferation of these labs around the world. Well, yeah, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm certainly seeing a lot of evidence with regards to bio labs in Ukraine. And you can see the global map there that was, I think, provided by the Sun. But there, there is a, a, a more comprehensive map in King's College paper that I know that you've got there, too. So this just shows how many BSL labs there are in, in, in the world. And in particular, we're looking at uh, BSL-4. So these are the high security um, 
biolabs. So these are the ones you can see, and I think it's pretty horrifying the, the amount that, that are there. And what the Russians are saying is that they've so far um, found 26, I believe, in Ukraine, and they're saying that the United States have actually got control of 336 globally. Now, a lot of their work links up to much of their work in the States at Fort Detrick. And I know that we were talking about that last week, um, and we were talking also about the fact that the, the bioweapons were suspected to be in Ukraine. And certainly the Defence Threat Reduction Agency, the DTRA, seemed to be funding these projects. And these buildings um, that are alleged to be in Ukraine, and so far I am seeing plenty of evidence to support that they do exist, they were built by a company called Black and Beach, an engineering company, but they subcontracted Georgia and Ukraine to a company called Metabiota. And this is an interesting company in itself because um, they, they um, are involved with a Hunter Biden investment, etc. And, you know, you look at the whole situation in there and it's far more complicated. But I know that if I was in Russia, I would be extremely worried about the number of biolabs that there appear to be in Ukraine and not just biolabs. You know, if you go onto clinicaltrials.gov and search country, you'll see that in Ukraine, there are an awful lot of clinical trials going on, as are there um, lots of big chemical companies. So much more to this story um, than meets the eye, I think. And I think we need to keep a very a very close eye on it. And the DTRA, um, for those of you that want to look, look it up, they were originally known in America as the Defense Special Weapons Agency and aligned to DARPA, etc. So yeah, this is a big story and it's evolving every single day. And I think the Russians and the Chinese have come out and said they want to ask the USA a lot of questions. Changing a name doesn't change the mission necessarily. No, not at all. Debbie, thank you. Thank you very much for that. And I know that over the coming days and weeks, we've got a lot more to say on this subject. Let's have a, a listen, a look at uh, video clips as to what the Russians have said about this uh, biolab situation themselves. So the first one is, is the Russian military uh, giving their overview. And then we'll hear from uh, Sergei Lavrov. Нами получена от сотрудников украинских биолабораторий документация об экстренном уничтожении 24 февраля особо опасных патогенов, возбудителей чумы, сибирской язвы, тулеремии, холеры и других смертельных болезней. Очевидно, что с началом специальной военной операции у Пентагона возникли серьезные опасения в раскрытии ведения секретных биологических экспериментов на территории Украины. В украинских биолабораториях в непосредственной близости от территории России осуществлялась разработка компонентов биологического оружия. Указания Минздрава Украины об уничтожении патогенов и акты уничтожения в Полтавской и Харьковской биолабораториях мы публикуем прямо сейчас. So there we are. We ended with them showing some of the documents that have now started to appear in the Western uh, uh, press, but pretty clear statements that are great concern about what's been happening. Let's let's hear what um, Lavrov himself has to say. 
it has arrived there, and we ha had data, and we have data that Pentagon, the Pentagon is preoccupied about the chemical and biological installations in Ukraine, because Pentagon built two biological war labs, and they have been developing pathogens there in Kiev and in Odessa, and now they are concerned that they may lose control over these labs. And you know what it may be like in future? And the Americans decline flatly and resolutely to start a inspection mechanism as part of the Convention for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. And they build new chemical and biological facilities all across Russian borders. And, uh, you know, many other developments happened. The CIA has been on the ground in, in droves, and they have been training the Ukrainian army not to wage a war with Poland, apparently. And when developments in Iraq happened, when the United States claimed it was a threat to the U.S. national security, did anyone ask back then why the United States decided to bring a territory 10,000 kilometers away from the American coasts to order because the U.S. is a great power. But when Russia says that there is a threat to us, they start telling us that there is not a threat at all. But, you know, we will decide what is needed to provide for our security. When it's just close and next to our borders, we will not go 10,000 kilometers away to assert our rules. And so, Alex, any immediate uh, comments on uh, what Lavrov, Lavrov had to say there? It's not particularly uh, a departure from what the uh, Russians have been saying for a long time. It's just that they seem to have more and more reasons to wave at uh, the diplomatic world to, to, to cite double standards. Uh, people listening to the quality of that, and I don't want to make any invidious comparisons, This, this, both of the clips you've heard from the interpreting today are the most difficult kind there is, namely remote simultaneous retour, if you're technically minded. Um, but the, the difference is that the chap doing Russian to English was much more practiced than the chap doing Ukrainian to English. And if it had been really important for President Zelensky's words to reach parliamentarians in Britain, he would have spoken Russian and there would have been a much, much more practiced connection, but it was for show. Therefore, they just did it on the cheap. I'm pretty sure of that from what I've heard. Uh, I would also mention, as you've played back to back these two briefings, people will also recognize the long-term Russian MOD chief briefer who has been there through things like the Skripal Port and Down affair as well. People will know him from the Syria bombing briefings as well. Um, he's pointing out that the real shockers, the plague, bacillus, tularemia, anthrax, all the stuff that Porton Down and uh, Fort Dietrich have wanted nobody else in the world to weaponize for a long time. He's saying that these are being talked about and or documented by Ukrainian health uh, ministry laboratory workers as Russian troops arrive. No documents yet have shown that these really grade A, shockingly worrying uh, bacteria that can only really be there for nefarious purposes have been weaponized or pleasant, present at the lab. The documentation so far is for other pathogens. But nevertheless, if the documents are genuine and they appear to be to me, Prima Facie, then on the day that they were, they were invaded, an order was given by the, uh, the Ukrainian president, number 64, um, to destroy them. Why? Uh, very good question. Now, Lavrov uh, also gave a Pretty unusual um, interview, or uh, unusual in the sense that it doesn't happen very often to a whole uh, range of uh, Western 
media, including ABC, NBC from the US, France 24, ITN, Russia Today, and PRC Media Corporation. Um, I just want to very briefly run through a couple of the things that he uh, said. So uh, uh, he said the Euro European Union was shown its place. It was coerced into doing what it's now doing. End of story. Uh, he said, so all this talk about being, and he talked about NATO in the same sort of breath, and he was saying all this talk about the defensive character of the alliance of NATO is cheap talk. If the alliance were defensive, it would have had to defend itself by now, but nobody has ever attacked it. And so he then went on to ask, what is the reason for NATO's existence? There is none. Uh, but Alex, just very briefly, uh, the European Union was shown its place. It was coerced into doing what it's now doing. I think that's a slight mis. I think he's not quite grasping, and perhaps you could say that about the German and the French governments or the national governments, but actually the EU, Alex, I think we can agree, has been uh, very much uh, as aggressively anti-Russian uh, and, uh, you know, and pro-NATO and so on as, as the UK has the, at, at EU level, I mean. Most certainly. If you look at politicians who only really have an EU existence nowadays, like Guy Verhofstadt, okay, he was big in Belgium. Uh, when he was doing national politics, but he's only really an, an, an EU-level politician now. He does the Atlanticist line, and he even went during the Maidan coup of 2014 to do his arm-wavy act, you know, we will attack the Russians tomorrow, more or less, not in, in terms, but that's, that's the suggestion. So there is that kind of EU politician. But I think the reason Lavrov is being a little more reticent here is the Russian diplomatic strategy at the moment seems to be to call upon the Berlin-Brussels axis, or if you want, the Berlin-Paris axis, to make the EU its own sphere of influence and to drift itself loose, cast itself loose from uh, Anglo, essentially a bank-run uh, world order. Uh, and I think the Russians are hinting in the end that much of Eastern Europe can be a Franco-German sphere of influence if only Manhattan and the city are cut out of it. That's probably why he's deliberately pretending uh, not to see just how much aggression there is in certain EU politicians. By the way, not just Belgians or other, uh, you know, traditional Atlanticist countries like the Scandinavians and the Dutch. You see this as much from Italian and Spanish uh, wannabes who, who get up to EU level. Yes. OK, let's uh, move on with it then. And the next point he was making, uh, he said, we cannot tolerate this threat because Ukraine has been turned into the anti-Russia into a bridgehead for undermining everything Russian. Mm. Uh, this was part of a geopolitical game, a big geopolitical game. He said that, uh, uh, you know, so uh, we'll move on to the next one. He said, I believe he, that's Zelensky, is being manipulated by nationalists and neo-Nazis. Otherwise, I find it difficult to explain how President Zelensky can preside over a society where neo-Nazis and neo-Nazism are flourishing. Uh, he went on to say, ask the Indian or Arab or African students who are trying to leave Ukraine, but they won't let them go. We might come on to this, I think, with Alex a little bit more in a second, but he's uh, pointing out that, you know, it, uh, there's quite a lot of uh, fairly unpleasant stuff going on on the Ukrainian side of, of the situation. Um, not a single person, well, so this was a criticism of the mainstream press, really not a single person from your channel or any other media outlet in the West have ever thought of traveling to the Donbass. So he's talking about the numbers of people that have been uh, killed and injured in the Donbass since 2014. And there's been no media coverage, silence in the West. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so, of course, that, that puts a, a very different context on what Russia is doing. Uh, he said uh, Russia's intervention is a forced decision because they, because they, that's in the West, refuse to listen to us and instead kept lying to us for the past 30 years. Uh, and he said, uh, President Putin has pointed out that NATO's expansion uh, is unacceptable to us, but we are ready to openly discuss security guarantees for Ukraine, for Europe, 
and for the Russian Federation. And uh, Alex, you know, I, th I think that um, th there are th this comments like this from from okay, this was an interview to ITN and so on, but it's it's very rare that that uh, Lavrov or anybody else is getting the opportunity to express this in the Western media, um, and uh, really. Unless people hear what he has to say, they can't have the full context of what's going on. Well, of course, because he's a, a seasoned foreign minister. Obviously, it's a wartime uh, speech. He's, he's obviously going to put a Russian gloss on things. We can't be naive about that. But during both World Wars and the Cold War, we were continuing to be told by the BBC, by the, the, the Times, the New York Times and all the rest, what Hitler and Stalin were saying. Not anymore. We're, we're, we're denied that, you know, and, and some of it is, you know, it's, it's not just a, a litany of grievances that particularly Lavrov has. He talks about the international legal situation and the precedents. And if we're not being able to hear that, then something is, is, is not stacking up here. Yeah. And indeed, perhaps this is one of the things that's not stacking up because, uh, well, I sh I, were we going to do the, uh, the Putin talk first or go straight no, on no, to this? No, no, we're going to go just... straight on to, to the neo-Nazis executing. Uh, yes. Uh, yes. So VoltaireNet.org is run by the peerless French geopolitical writer Thierry Messon, who's been big since 9-11, really, uh, in analyzing things independently. And OK, it's a, it's a sensationalist headline, neo-Nazis execute member of Ukraine's negotiation team. But it does appear to have happened. If you tap that again, you'll see that the man in the red box is Denis Kirev a former parliamentarian uh, who's big in the banking world, who's had jobs with uh, uh, banks that uh, uh, have mainly a presence in Austria and Ukraine. And uh, some of his circle appear to be right up to national bank level. And he, as I was saying to Vanessa Bealy, if you look for her Telegram channel or YouTube channel, I, I went into a little bit of detail on this without mentioning Kireyev's name. I was generalizing it. Kireyev uh, appears to have gone to the talks in Minsk hosted by Belarus. Um, perhaps because of his financial expertise, who knows? Um, and then, you know, the, the next thing that happens is, and I, I'm not going to show the, the gory picture of him lying uh, dead on the ground, but it's been circulated and confirmed that he's dead. The next thing is he comes back to Kiev and he's gunned down, and there are accusations that he was plotting treason. Uh, the gentleman who's now being shown in a, a warehouse blindfolded is Nestor Shufrich, a serving member of the Verkhovna Rada who didn't seem to have much parliamentary immunity in practice, he, apparently because of his att attempts to negotiate with the Russians, was kidnapped by the SBU, the Ukra notorious Ukrainian service, security service, very close to MI6, uh, and is being held here with masking tape or you know, something even stronger around his head, looking very confused and handcuffed as well. And nor is that all, because the mayor of one of the towns near Kiev, where the heavy fighting has been, Hostomil, uh, died on Monday. Both sides accept that that's the case. The gentleman's name was Yuri Prilipko. For a couple of days, Russian language sources were asserting that this was because on a city level rather than nationally, he was attempting to speak to the local Russian forces and agree a humanitarian corridor. How that's being carried now by all the Western media is the Russians killed him with fire. In order, not, sorry, well, not, not literally with fire, but you know, he, he died under Russian gunfire during the invasion as he heroically went out to see to the distribution of bread or whatever it was. But for the first couple of days, the claim was that he was yet another politician uh, who was attempting to negotiate humanitarian arrangements with the Russians. Uh, and the next thing you know, he's been shot. Um, now, as regards the foreigners, 
uh, this is something that's you know uh, is, is is being widely noticed. Uh, if people realise that there's a lot of cities along the Ukrainian Black Sea coast that end in the, let, the letters P O L Pol, that's because these are Pontic Greek settlements, very ancient ones. Mariupol, where the biggest pocket of Ukrainians is now, who are being held in place by. Um, it seems their own side as human shields uh, contains well over a hundred thousand such Greeks and uh, an Athenian channel uh, Sky uh, Greek Sky that is S K A I has interviewed a Greek in Mari Mariupol uh, who says in his own words and of course as an ethnic Greek in that part of the country he's going to be pro-Russian they they mostly are with that caveat he says that fascist Ukrainians uh, were going to kill him if and, and and they wouldn't let him leave or us actually over a hundred thousand ethnic Greeks uh, tap that again and you will see that the man in question is called Mr. Kuranas and he says whenever you try to leave and this is I know it's it's a Russian assertion again that the, the humanitarian corridors are in place as they were in Aleppo and that they're, they're not uh, they're not being used by anyone because people are being kept in place by their own side but he says when you try to leave and I have seen footage of this happening a woman asking to leave and being told no you can't you run the risk of running into a patrol of the Ukrainian fascists as he calls them the Azov Battalion and this is one of the complex of, of far right fighters here who as we keep saying you know they're a small minority of the Ukrainian forces but perhaps the most determined and capable ones and he says that it's his own side the Ukrainians who would uh, kill him and who are responsible for everything I don't think you've put in a slide for the the Putin talk that uh, uh, you, you sent me yesterday but uh, I'll just summarize oh you have good I'll just summarize that yesterday Putin was um, Addressing, we have silent footage on screen at the moment, uh, a delegation of very elegantly dressed Russian women for Russia for International Women's Day, which is a, a, a big thing in the whole of the former Soviet Union on the 8th of March. They seem to be mostly Russian air stewardesses whom he's addressing. And he took nearly half an hour to answer two questions, obviously scripted. Obviously, the first one was from a lady who said, some of us are mothers and we're very worried about what's going on with the Ukraine as women. And the second one asked more about the legal basis for intervention. What, what was the crime of aggression? And I wouldn't say it's spectacular. It's simply a, a restatement of Putin's main talking points um, as to uh, what happened since 2014, the unconstitutionality of forcing the uh, Donbass and Crimean people into a unitary state. Um, the unconstitutionality, even according to Ukraine's constitution, of attempting to join NATO, the the naked Nazism of people on the, some people uh, parading uh, who are also in the Ukrainian armed forces, the recent rhetoric of nuclear weapons, which Putin asserts started from the Ukrainian side, and he start he ends up by say ends up by saying this is now a civilizational issue. We we have to intervene because it's either their state or our state is going to disintegrate as a result of how far things have been pushed. He also says twice with emphasis that there are no conscripts serving in the Russian forces in Ukraine at the moment. He says they are all either uh, officers or kontraktniki, uh, professional non-commissioned soldiers, no enlisted men, which is not what we're hearing in the West, and I've got no way of verifying it. But of course, he's tailoring that to an, an audience of Russian women uh, who are addressing him on particular women's concerns, which of course is a concept that isn't allowed in the West now. But there you go. And I think the reason you sent me that, uh, Mike, is that you found that it was hard to get in Britain. Perhaps no, not just uh, unavailable with subtitles, but it was blocked, was it? Yes, it was blocked in Britain. So there was no possibility of anybody uh, finding that. Now, I have subsequently, Alex, found a, a copy of it uh, on BitChute, uh, Bit I think, which uh, has subtitles. So uh, we'll maybe see if we can get a link to that underneath the uh, UK column news uh, later on. Now, let's uh, just quickly move on uh, to this. 
Uh, this is uh, Fitch Ratings, and uh, well, they have decided to downgrade uh, Russian sovereign debt uh, to C ranking, which is the lowest ranking, uh, which is, they're implying, therefore, that a default is absolutely going to happen imminently uh, because of the sanctions that are hitting. Um, so as a result of that, commodity prices have been affected. Uh, so food prices have headed north very, very quickly. Uh, oil, food, and other commodity prices uh, soared and shares uh, fell on, uh, on Monday, but uh, also uh, for the rest of the week, uh, and so on. So uh, that what is the impact of sanctions going to be on, on the West? Well, let's have a look uh, at this, uh, because as we were driving in this morning, uh, the local filling station, local petrol stations for diesel, uh, the ESO stations were charging £1.64 per litre. Uh, and it was £1.57 yesterday. Uh, but uh, BP has to take uh, the biscuit for taking the mickey uh, because they are now charging locally here to the UK Column Studio £1.82 per litre, uh, up from £1.70 yesterday. Um, and uh, so th that is becoming extremely significant extremely quickly. Uh, and this is going to have a massive impact on people simply commuting to work, but it's also going to have a massive impact, of course, um, on uh, the cost of everything because everything is uh, driven around the country in articulated lorries with diesel engines. So that is inevitable. So, but what is the next impact? Well, of course, we've seen higher gas prices as well. And Bulb uh, was one of the uh, so-called uh, energy companies uh, providing retail energy uh, in the UK that went bankrupt in September, October last year. They were effectively sort of pseudo-nationalized by the government in uh, November, I think it was. Um, and, uh, well, it looks like the UK taxpayer is going to be paying significantly more uh, as a result of this uh, nationalisation than was otherwise expected. So what had happened was that uh, in November, wholesale prices were £2 per unit of uh, natural gas. Uh, this is on the wholesale market. Uh, since then, they've gone massively higher than that. So £4.70 in December and then as high as £8 on Monday this week. Uh, and uh, so that means that uh, the Treasury had set aside £1.7 billion pounds to uh, make purchases of gas in order to sell to people uh, in the UK. Uh, now, of course, because the government owns this company, then the government carries the losses uh, that come about as a result of the price cap on gas. So there's a price cap on gas, which means that the energy companies can't charge more than a certain amount to the retail customer. But if they have to buy it for more than that on the retail, on the wholesale market, then obviously it's costing it, they're losing money. And so uh, as a result of these high prices, the government is going to end up paying a lot more. But that means, in fact, the taxpayer pays a lot more. Uh, and uh, well, but the question is, what has the mainstream media been saying? Well, of course, it's all as a result of Putin's Ukraine invasion. It's all Putin's fault. It's got nothing to do with anything that was going on before the Ukraine conflict. Uh, and it's got nothing to do with uh, government policy with respect to sanctions and so on. Uh, because, of course, the UK government has now uh, announced that uh, uh, it will uh, stop buying Russian oil. They say that 5% of uh, oil comes into the UK from uh, Russia, but that's going to stop immediately. And the BBC here reporting that Ukraine says it may cut gas supplies if the oil ban goes ahead. Well, the oil ban is going ahead. And in fact, Shell was uh, yesterday or the day before um, made to feel uh, pretty embarrassed about having bought oil from Russia. Um, and uh, so this is going to have a massive uh, knock-on effect uh, on the UK. And uh, so let's have a look at this then. This is the Resolution Foundation. I suggest everybody reads this. This is the Living Standards Outlook for 2022. And they're saying that uh, their preliminary estimate is that the conflict in Ukraine could push peak inflation for 2022 to 23 above 8%. 
Uh, this could leave the typical real household income for non-pensioners uh, 4% or £1,000 lower in 2021-2022. Uh, this is a scale of fall only previously seen around recessions. And in fact, some of the mainstream media are saying it's the biggest squeeze on incomes for nearly 50 years. Uh, they're saying that real incomes are projected to fall in 2023-2024 as well by 2%, driven by weak forecast pay forecasts uh, and the end of government energy bills support package. Uh, and then they say looking at relative poverty, annual poverty and overall inequality, the most pronounced proje uh, projected changes are large falls in 2020 to 21, followed by large rebounds in 21 to 2022 as uh, benefit boosts are withdrawn. So uh, the situation getting very worse there, very much worse there. Uh, and the same with respect to child poverty as well. So um, this uh, situation, at the end of the day, what has been what really is behind all this is an economic reality that the that the western economic system is in a state of collapse that began in 2007 2008 that isn't changing and while the west is busy trying to sort of re-engineer things through the green new deal and whatnot uh, there are some things that, that are unstoppable and uh, runaway inflation is one of those uh, and the ukraine situation is just an excuse yeah a lovely war. A lovely war, indeed. Right, let's move on to this. This is a, I want to say thank you to the person who sent this through to me uh, earlier today. This is from a primary school, Grange Park Primary School. Uh, and uh, well, it's a letter all about Ukraine because we've got to teach our children all about Ukraine. Our children are starting to talk about it in the, play, in the playground, so we've got to talk about it uh, to them. Uh, and so they say, we yet again find ourselves in a world situation which is far from ideal is scary and is all over the news. I know as parents, many of you will find yourselves feeling worried and confused too. Uh, and this may lead you to not talk to your children about the difficult topic. I write to this, uh, today to suggest that you talk to your children in an age appropriate way, in an age where the news is all around us and in conversation and on social media, Instagram, TikTok, and Snapchat. Uh, we need to ensure that our children receive difficult or troubling news from a source that is accurate, age appropriate, and in the presence of someone who cares for them, uh, either you or us. Um, and so they linked to some presentation slides, which are produced. Well, we'll show you who they're produced by in a second, but let's just have a look at them. So uh, the big question will cover, uh, the session will cover the big question, what is happening in Ukraine and so on. Uh, please note by while all information in this resource was accurate at the time of release, please be aware that news around this topic is changing daily. So the question is, is the information in this uh, set of slides accurate? Let's have a look. Uh, well, first of all, where should they, uh, get, where should, should children get the information from? Well, from the BBC, of course, and Newsround, uh, who've got a little video clip that they could play in this presentation on how we got here. Uh, and then here's another one. Ukraine and Russia have a long history, but things have got more tense over the past month. Um, Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, has been criticizing Ukraine's government and said he believed Russia wasn't safe from Ukraine. Um, so Alex, uh, first question, did Vladimir Putin ever suggest that Russia wasn't safe from Ukraine? Or was Vladimir Putin actually suggesting that it was Western influence on Ukraine and NATO in particular that he was concerned about? Because it seems to me that that is the first factual error that we've uh, seen so far. Uh, Putin wouldn't use language like that, no. And they've put it in inverted commas. Okay, it's for young children, so it may be that they're using it as uh, as allegedly quotes. Uh, but you know, children are going to read that and think that Putin said isn't safe because the word is in quotation marks. Putin's not said anything like that. But it's misleading for children anyway, because what threat was uh, Ukraine to, 
uh, Ukraine itself as a nation to Russia? Well, indeed, but uh, he has now said, such as speaking to the ladies yesterday for Women's Day, uh, that it has things have now reached such a pitch with Western support for what he calls Ukrainian extremists that either the Ukrainian state uh, is threatened, or if they uh, if the, the Russians take no action, their statehood and civilization is threatened. That is what he said, but he didn't say it in the build-up to the war, as has been suggested by this briefing. Yes. Okay. So let's move on to the next one then. Uh, of course, Vladimir Zelensky is uh, the hero of the day and has to be seen as such. So we've got a slide on him. Uh, and then we've got, uh, the, well, they say world leaders have said President Putin's actions were wrong and unfair. Many are now taking action to help Ukraine and encourage Putin uh, to end the war. So they're talking about sanctions and boycotts and so on. Uh, and then we've got refugees. Many countries are taking Ukrainians who are trying to escape the war. Poland has taken more than 115,000 refugees, brackets, and their pets. So a couple of points here. First of all, this, the inclusion of the and their pets uh, encourages children to believe that Poland has been really great in, in doing this uh, because they've been really helpful. But I'll just make the point that my uh, understanding is that 115,000 refugees in the country are being offered uh, benefits by the Polish government, which are not being offered to the Polish people. Uh, and therefore, this is, in fact, a a recipe for disaster. It's a it's a, a, a bomb primed to go off in the, in the not too distant future as people in Poland become more and more frustrated uh, frustrated with the unfairness, uh, perceived unfairness of uh, of what's going on there. Uh, then we've got, uh, of course, we've got to support all the charities and UNICEF and British Red Cross and uh, United Help Ukraine and so on. That's we've got to do that, uh, and uh, and of course, plenty of opportunity to get help uh, if you uh, are in any way concerned as a child about this. Again, we're promoting the BBC and Newsround, uh, and that is absolutely the theme, as we'll see in a second. So who's behind these uh, slides? Well, it's this organization, Votes for Schools, uh, giving young people the power to change the world is what they're talking about, provides weekly resources for teachers in the UK to prompt impartial discussion on a, cha uh, on a challenging current issue. And these uh, are what they describe as, uh, as zero uh, preparation, slides so they just get a package the teachers just get a package of information and they basically just read the script there's no requirement for thought on behalf of the teachers uh, or any kind of uh, uh, you know independent uh, encouragement to think for themselves for the children so who's behind it well we've got all kinds of people we've got uh, the department for education uh, we've got pixel we've got all kind of, well you can Met see them on police. screen the metropolitan uh, police on yeah, there yeah. as well Yes, Birmingham City Council UNICEF, and so on. Of course, yeah. Yes. Um, so uh, let's just have a look at uh, uh, the the document itself. Uh, sorry, this is back to the letter from the uh, from the primary school. And again, news round BBC and another one news round BBC. We've got to make sure that uh, the children only get their uh, news from reliable sources. And news round and the BBC is the reliable source as so far as this the is drilling concerned. drilling state propaganda gander into the heads of primary school children. And making sure that primary school uh, children uh, begin to understand, um, you know, where is the right place, the right place to get their information from. Yes. Yeah. Controlling how they think. Yes. Now, Alex, uh, let's move on to Odessa. Yes, uh, Odessa is a place where uh, friends of mine are now virtually under siege. And uh, although the segment we're about to play is not directly relevant to the, the build-up to war, it just remind, remind viewers that I was in Odessa just half a year ago, um, uh, and the hosts who were, um, whose property I was speaking from that day 
uh, are still there. Uh, the gentleman appearing with me here is not uh, that uh, host, but is another visitor from Georgia called uh, Gevorg Virats. Here we were talking about one of the many facets of Ukraine, Russia and Belarus uh, lining up into a new arrangement in intelligence matters. Ukraine, where we're sitting here, is extremely pro-Western in intelligence terms. And uh, it agreed to lure some of the former fighters who'd been in Syria as uh, well, we're, we're, we're told in the West they're mercenaries, but anyway, they were on Assad's side, um, to leave Russia for what they thought was the security of the pro-Russian country of Belarus. But it was all uh, a sting. And once they got there, they were turned over for war crimes. So um, the, the battle really is uh, for Belarus, because Ukraine is def definitively, as people I think know, in the Western but how did Ukraine definitively move into the Western camp? Well, my contention is that that didn't actually fully happen with the 2014 so-called Revolution of Dignity, better known as the Maidan. And of course, Mike, on Friday, uh, towards the end of UK Column News, you played uh, the not-so-charming clip uh, of a Ukrainian acknowledged neo-Nazi who repeatedly calls himself uh, a Nazi in the clip. The, um, uh, the, the gentleman Yevhen Karas from the C-14 militia, one of the so many that there are in Ukraine, he was talking about the 8%, as he called them, who, who were committed uh, radical nationalists, far right, within the Maidan protesters in 2014. He said, we were enough to swing it because we were so determined and competent and well-funded and whatnot. Well, my contention is that it took half a year after the spring 2019 election of uh, Zelensky, for Zelensky himself to forswear his, his uh, election promise to uh, reconcile the Russian and Ukrainian speaking blocs. And uh, this is actually uh, reported even by the national Ukrainian press, what happened there. There is a, a village uh, along what was the line of control in the Donbass republics named Zolote, uh, which had a lot of uh, these Azov battalion and similar uh, militias in it, some of whom had illegal arms caches. They promised their own newly elected president in April, in, sorry, in October 2019, half a year after Zelensky took over from Poroshenko, that they would uh, uh, get rid of those arms and take them out of the zone of conflict. Well, the Kiev Post reported at the time that uh, Zelensky went in his famous uh, olive green T-shirt uh, to the uh, line of control to Zorotev and found himself speaking, if you tap that again, to Denis Yantar, who's described here as a veteran. Now, the point about veteran is if you, most of the militias, except the White Hammer Brigade, who are too extreme even for the neo-Nazis, are federated into this thing called the right sector, Pravi sector. Once you've been a, a hard nut in one of these militias, you graduate to the National Corps, which isn't a National Guard. It's uh, it's a bunch of veterans such as this uh, um, uh, uh, Gentleman on Friday, Yevhen Karas was talking about, you know, the guys who we can call upon to really uh, change the map, the, the European map, uh, the, the guys who will do the bidding of Turkey, Britain, Poland, and he didn't mention Israel, but that would, that would be in there too. So this was the, the, the moment of truth for Zelensky two years ago. He would, he'd just been elected. He went to see this, Denis. He's now speaking his native language, Russian. And you can see even in a few seconds of the clip that we're about to play, that the body language uh, was quite something. Um, this was where Zelensky, I think, realized he was on a hiding to nothing and that he was being arm twisted. Uh, you'll hear him saying, if you speak any Russian, it's quite faintly recorded. Listen, Denis, who's the head of the local uh, irregular militia, 
I'm not a nobody. I'm 41. I'm the president. I told you to get these arms out and you lied to me. And you can see that the gentleman with his back to the camera uh, is this Denis Yanta who's trying desperately to wriggle off the hook. Uh, but this was just a, a few seconds to show you uh, what Zelensky was, uh, was trying to do, perhaps in good faith, as recently as October 2019. So I think for those who have been watching the image there and not just in audio, or even those who just heard the voice, he was quite ticked off, to say the least, that he realised he'd been bested. It is the contention of many that from that time onwards, the oligarch Ihor Kolomoisky, about whom more in extra time, uh, told uh, well, should we say set his attack dogs on Zelensky. And uh, although he probably, well, certainly uh, brought Zelensky to power, it was after this that the guys who said, I'm, I, I'm above politics, uh, like Bielecki, the, the, the overall leader of the National Guard, uh, sorry, of, of, the, of the right sector, who said, I'm not going to bother standing for the presidential election. Those guys like Andrei Bielecki then started really strong arming Zelensky into taking an extremely anti-Russian position. Here's another nugget. I know we have to go quickly, but Countercurrents is, uh, I think it's fair to say, a far-right website. Here they are uh, a couple of days ago, the 7th of March, interviewing Olena Semenyaka, who is uh, you know, telling the usual story that uh, we will fight the Russians to the last. She's obviously a Ukrainian extreme nationalist, ethno-nationalist. The sympathetic interview calls her Our Lady in Kiev, spelt the Ukrainian way for, for, um, for effect. If you tap that again, you will see that she's talking here about what the whole of that cluster of far-right actors in Ukraine, which I stress again is a small minority, but the most powerful minority in the Ukrainian uh, forces resisting Russia right now uh, with arms, wants to do. It wants basically to reconstruct the interwar Polish-French plan of the intermarium, meaning the, the land between the seas. They want, in the end, a federated Eastern European state uh, that is a complete buffer between Germany and Russia. And uh, when you played that uh, Jochen Karas clip on Friday, it became even apparent that they want to absorb parts of Russia and Germany and move westward and eastward into the new, I would contend, the new one world state. I can't unfold those ideas now, but they're starting to come to me and I shall be continuing to, to ruminate above them, uh, around them now that we see this. Now, if you just tap that once more before bringing it on screen, because I've duplicated the first uh, slide. There we are. If we bring that on. Back in 2015, the same website, in, a, in its charming uh, white nationalist way, was talking about the arise of a Baltic Black Sea Union, <clears throat> reviving the plan with the Ukraine and Poland as centerpieces, but going all the way up to Estonia, down to the Adriatic and the Black Sea, so down to all three seas. Okay, and if, if we think that's a bit familiar, then if you tap that again, you'll see why. It is because I'm not suggesting any, inter I must say, I'm not suggesting any uh, organizational links here, but how similar it is, with the exception of the uh, Moldova-Ukraine-Belarus zone, to the Three Seas Initiative, also known as Trimarium, which is a European Union project to get these countries more linked to infrastructure and more involved in sustainable growth and development. Uh, so let's uh, tap that again, and we'll see that um, the countercurrent article talks about there being many ways to achieve this intermarium, and it should be open to expanding westward and taking the disenchanted Eastern Germans away. And uh, Karas, as you, you played on Friday, Mike, is also saying if Russia splits into five, we will take the Western bit as well. 
right? So this is a new actor. The, Karask blew the gaff on it. It's not just Britain playing silly games in Poland and the Ukraine on a sort of horizontal axis anymore, but it has a vertical axis going all the way down to Turkey and Israel as well. And it's, it's a massive thought that I've started to see, but I really am starting to think uh, that a substantial portion of the Western financial oligarchy thinks that this will be the new world state instead of Germany or Russia, and that they want Britain with its diplomatic wiles to be a key mover for this. For example, supplying anti-tank javelin missiles, as Karas said. The last slide uh, for that uh, section shows that the woman who was interviewed isn't just some low-level person. She's actually there addressing the intermarium uh, symposium in Ukraine with the usual uh, beardy uniform guy in, the, in there as well. Most of these guys are pretty suspicious. If you tap that again, you will see what I mean. Because here is Dmitro Kotsubailo, who's the overall commander of the uh, right sector forces, now the, 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 um, the, the conglomeration of uh, far-right forces. He's there in his day job uniform as a Ukrainian um, uh, serviceman receiving a National Hero Award from uh, President Zelensky. Uh, since he had his arm fully twisted into this position. I don't think he's personally comfortable with this position or wasn't, but I think he's seared his conscience or cut his losses now. Tap that once more and you will see what the countercurrents article says at its conclusion, that Eastern Europe now starts to be, need to becoming a subject of history. Instead of having horrible things done to it by Germany and Russia, it must start becoming the actor, becoming thereby the harbinger of a bright future for the whole white race. And Turkey and Israel are in on this. They are arming these people and they're sending jihadis to them, as both Putin and Lavrov are now saying. Uh, it's quite earth shattering when you see this is going on, but I can't ignore it anymore because I think this is actually one of the main geopolitical issues of the moment. We'll just skip through a few more things that are coming out, out as regards Russophobia. Uh, very very quickly, Georgia. if we could, Alex, please, because we are short of time. The Bank of Georgia requires Russians now opening an account and it humiliates them by making them do this in English rather than Russian, makes them condemn their own country in order to open or retain a Georgian bank account. There is also a sponsored uh, post on Facebook, not written by Facebook itself, but by a sponsored uh, external provider doing one of these trashy personality uh, uh, surveys. And if you look at the right-hand column, it tells us that the Russians phrase are aggression, manipulation, toxicity, pressure, self-centeredness, negativity, immorality, and violence. The online course organizer for academic students, Coursera, is telling people that uh, in the West this is, that if they've uh, enrolled via Coursera to have a Russian college teach them a course, they only have three months to complete it, and then it will be uh, re uh, removed because Russian academia is being cancelled. And uh, I think that's the... Uh, Oh, yeah. The last one from me in this section is that uh, this rather blood curdling looking uh, logo is, for, is by the uh, is the Slovak National Crime Agency, NACA. Uh, RTV Spravi in Bratislava uh, is reporting people can expect long sentences now for war propaganda. Tap that once more and you'll see that section 417 of the Slovak Criminal Code now says that you can have up to 10 years in prison for war propaganda not defined, and, art and, and uh, article, sorry, or, uh, clause two of that article says that this can go up to life imprisonment if it has been done during a crisis situation, or if you are a member of a dangerous group, or if you did it with foreign agents, very undefined terms. This is, I think, already in, in play. So other countries in that block have already got the same provisions, but the Slovaks have got the worst. You can go to prison for life now for retweeting re Russia today, if I understand correctly. 
Um, so I just wanted to uh, mention, Alex, uh, the sort of propaganda that there is. I mean, Tim, who has just rolled out our membership website recently, was uh, was rolling out some software for uh, for another client today. And uh, well, this is what appeared on the screen. So this is obviously very uh, software uh, technical, but the key thing was info from repo.packagelist.org, hashtag stand with Ukraine. You can't get away from it. And uh, Alex, uh, you uh, included this image. An East Anglian subscriber to my Telegram channel, Eastern Approaches, put this through. Welcome to Newton. Please drive carefully. And some wag has put in underneath, twinned with Ukraine. Uh, with, the, with the blue and yellow flag. And I'll just add to that, that even walking my dog this morning in a path through some woods, I was astonished to see a huge Ukrainian flag had been uh, put up complete with a big red heart. So uh, the propaganda coming through UK is truly amazing. Just have a look at this uh, Sky News clip, though, to see how bad it has really got with the so-called mainstream media. Uh, this Sky News clip lasted about an hour and was then removed, but uh, we're delighted to say that one of our viewers was kind enough to capture it. Going on in the centre of, of Irpin at the moment. This has really picked up in the last couple of hours because earlier on this morning when we, when we were intending to go into um, the centre, we were told that it was it was possible to get in to the centre from our military contacts and um, obviously that's completely changed in the last few hours and many of the Ukrainians who've been coming out of Irpin and Butcher have been demanding that there's some sort of humanitarian corridor agreed because where all that noise is coming from, where all that military sound that you're hearing, there are civilians there at the end of that. Terrified civilians. The, the, it, we, look, these are some of them that have just come out. Um, again, there's a, a small gaggle of, of, of um, journalists here um, who, are, who are trying to get into the city to talk to some of the civilians. And these are the coaches that they're being taken out on. Um, Let's, let's just take a quick look inside before, just to get a quick... Does anyone speak English here? Yeah. Hi, how, what was it like in there? Where you, You've just come from Erpen or somewhere else? We were on a circle, uh, like, you know, when you... Okay, don't worry, okay, they're, they're very stressed. Tell me quickly, are you all right? I'm all right. And how, how many people are trapped I in there? Legalized. British. British, British. Uh, how many more? Cannabis legalized in uh, Pardon? Uh, is uh, cannabis legalized in <laughs> I don't know whether cannabis, uh, cannabis uh, is licensed. Uh, I'm glad that's all you're thinking about. How many civilians are still there, do you think? Uh, I think not many uh, those who can't uh, uh, like, you know, defend themselves. Right, there, but there are still substantial civilians there. Look, you can see they're in a traumatized state. Very of them, very. The Ukrainians are strong people. He's asking, "Are you all right, sir?" Yeah, they're, they've got very red faces. They're looking very upset because they know that they're uh, they're lucky to be alive. Frankly, um, even the most glory to Ukraine. Glory to Ukraine. 
that's what um, a lot of that and still more vehicles are going back in to try and pick people up travel safe Okay. So if we just bring um, Debbie back on screen, Debbie, you were able to actually watch this, uh, this report live. And the young gentleman on the bus who was remarkably casual since he'd been under stress in the war zone, he was busy thinking about uh, was cannabis legalized in, in the West. Um, but uh, when he was asked, are there many people in there? He actually said, well, there's a few. And that was then changed to something rather different by the Sky Reporter. What did she actually say? Well, I, I'm, I've watched it a few times and she says substantial. And he quite clearly, uh, that's what I'm hearing, said not many. And I found that the reporter was appearing to be more anxious and more worried than the people that were coming out who seemed very, I mean, obviously people are going to be upset that they're, they're leaving their homes. But the people that I was watching on that bus were very measured. They appeared very calm. They were walking in, in, a, in a, a very measured way and they weren't seemed to be panicking. So it just seemed to me as though the Sky, Alex Crawford, the Sky News war broadcaster, was, was making it something that perhaps it wasn't. Um, yeah. But that was my take on it. But, I, you know, I, that, that clip was edited the following hour. It, it wasn't included in the report. Okay, thank you very much for that. Okay, if uh, you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org uh, and there are options to help us out there. That would be very much appreciated. Also share any material you find on the uh, various platforms. Uh, and also if you'd like to pick something up from the UK Column shop, uh, it's shop.ukcolumn.org for that. Uh, Alex, uh, that brings us on to a tweet here. Uh, and uh, the question is, what is the vaccine status of uh, Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainians and fellow freedom fighters? Even worse than a tweet, this comes from the Reddit thread, which for the, uh, the less techno literate is where people ask questions and form communities to help each other buy stuff and whatever. Reddit has a subreddit called Volunteers for Ukraine. And this, in all sincerity, appears to be a guy saying he really wants to go uh, up against the professional Russian soldiers in the Ukraine, but he's a bit worried that the jab rate is a bit low. So he says, appreciate that there's chaos at the moment, but are efforts being made to vax and boost the Ukrainian population? Otherwise, he won't feel quite safe enough. And just my two tuppence worth about that bus clip, it's very reminiscent of the, what happened in many Syrian war zones in the last decade, that uh, the favoured few are allowed to leave. And among them, the young men who are swaggering like that legalised cannabis now guy, they know they're off to the West. I've had such people from bordering countries to the Ukraine turn up in the Netherlands. And if they start asking, is 420 legal in, in this country? And are the girls easy? That's because they know they're about to you know, uh, go off to a, a Western free for all on someone else's dime. I suspect this young man uh, has got his money uh, and his favoured uh, status from some Western spook organisation just to go off to the West and be the right kind of Ukrainian refugee. We've seen it all from Syria. And I think he, behind his grin, he knows that most of his townspeople are still being kept hostage. Yes. Alex, uh, thank you for that. That brings us nicely onto the subject of vaccines and vaccine damage, now all buried by the uh, lovely war that Boris Johnson's so keen on. Um, but we're going to say a big thank you to the Conservative woman for a very interesting article entitled The Deafening Silence of Dame June Rain. 
And uh, Debbie, if we can just bring you back, you've uh, had a look at this article. It's quite clear that, of course, it's not just the UK column that's picking up on the fact that the MHRA is not doing its job and investigating vaccine adverse reactions and, and deaths. Tell us just a little bit with an eye on the clock about this uh, article, and then we'll have a look at a bit of video footage of June Rain and some of the uh, claims that she and her colleagues have made about vaccine safety. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Yeah, this was a very, very good article by Gillian Diamond. I'd recommend everybody to go and have a look at it. And um, they did mention also in the article my problems of trying to get an answer from the MHRA. But Gillian was also talking about now this has affected her friends and her family circle in that some people are reporting blindness. And we know right from the start that there have been serious adverse reactions with regards to sight and blindness. And June Rain herself has been talking about Miller-Fisher syndrome. So she's asking questions about that, but she's also asking June Rain some very, very um, important questions like, where are you? And um, she quotes uh, Dr. Bernhardt, who's been doing the autopsies on people after they've had the, um, the jabs and to see the serious adverse reactions and the effect that it's had on, on people's bodies. Um, and she's basically saying, prove what you're saying, MHRA. But I love the way that she finished the article and I think it was very poignant and apologies for my pronunciation. But she finished the article on key tacit con consentia viderter. I'm sure Alex will correct me in a moment. But in English, it means he who is silent appears to consent and 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 you know dame june if you are watching all we are wanting is simple answers to questions and we're still uh, not getting them and she's being stonewalled just the same as we are well of course that uh that little uh latin motto appears at the end of every uk column news because that's something that we agree and agree with absolutely yeah so thank you for that let's have a look at jane <laughs> june rain in action and this going back to march 2021 but let's have a look at this clip from a board meeting and listen and see what june rain was claiming okay that being the case then um let's move on to the first substantive item and that's really an update from june uh in terms of what are the current key issues from the ceo's point of view june over to you well thank you stephen and uh good morning again everyone the report uh, for this month brings together our current areas of focus and I think you can see quite clearly from this report that it has been a tremendously busy time with a number of important priorities all running concurrently. So I'll try and pick out some of the, the key messages. Patient safety always remains our priority and it certainly is in the spotlight at this moment. Our intensive work continues on the safety monitoring of COVID-19 vaccines with the weekly publication of all the reports and certainly whenever a trend emerges or a concern a very intensive review then takes place such as the issues now in the spotlight around blood clots and low platelets and the AstraZeneca vaccine. So while our intensive scientific review of this issue is underway we are very clear that after 11 million doses in the UK and three, possibly four cases of blood clots with low platelet counts, this isn't greater than the number we would have expected 
in the vaccinated population. And of course, it's in the context of the known mortality of COVID-19 and its long-term consequences. So pending the outcome of our review and our expert group is meeting today, our advice remains to continue to use the AZ vaccine, which prevents hospitalization and death. So, so uh, Debbie, a classic from June Rain there. She is claiming, of course, that the vaccines are safe and she's saying how diligent the MHRA are being in ensuring that they're safe. The one thing she doesn't ever produce is any factual analysis that they are safe. And before I let you respond to that, Let's just bring her in on screen because we took this for some more recent board meetings into uh, 2022. We're committed to safety. Uh, patient safety is always our priority at all times. This is a completely false claim by the MHRA because they have not produced any quantitative risk assessment into vaccine adverse reactions and deaths. But it's not only June rain. Uh, the Salison Cave, no new safety concerns have been identified. Well, of course, there haven't been any new safety concerns because they haven't investigated vaccine adverse reactions, and nor have they undertaken that quantitative risk assessment. Now, you have been asking for their investigation. You haven't been getting any response, but you've also been trying to get into their board meetings, uh, which are still put out by Zoom, or are they? Well, that's a very good question, because I've been waiting for the February board meeting to uh, appear on YouTube. And as yet, it hasn't. Um, so I thought, well, I'll try and get into one of their board meetings, into the March board meeting. And as you can um, see, well, as you'll be able to see on screen, um, that's part of my question. It was on a contact form, so I had to photo, photo it, uh, screenshot it for you to see. And I was just asking the same question as I asked before in that where is the investigation or when will the investigation be commencing what is going on and please can i submit my question in public and i was delighted to find out that i could and that i got a ticket and i received an email from eventbrite to say job done i even got an email from the mhra to say you know you're included on the board meeting so i was absolutely over the moon um, uh, but then it all went a little bit differently. Well, here, here, we, here we are with the MHRA yeah. saying, Debbie, you've got your ticket. So that all looks very good. But all, all of a sudden you got this, which is unfortunately our upcoming board meeting schedule for Tuesday, the 15th of March has been cancelled. Our next board meeting held in public is scheduled for Tuesday, the 19th of April, 2022. So it appears that the MHRA has suddenly become very public shy, very camera shy after the uh, UK column asked people to pay attention to what the board meetings were saying. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'd say to everybody to go back and look at all the board meetings, because every single board meeting, they talk about safety. Every single board meeting, they talk about transparency. And so I've now emailed Dame June Rain back to ask if they're having a private board meeting in March that we won't be able to view. And if we will be able to view their February board meeting, and if I apply to the April board meeting, will I be able to put my question to the April board meeting for it to be held in public? So I don't know. Are we going to see MHRA board meetings again? Where has June Rain gone? You know, we've said, where's where's Chris Whitty? We've said, where's the NHS? Where's Sage? They've gone. And now it seems that we're all being stonewalled by the MHRA. 
Uh, well, Chris Woody has made an appearance, and we'll talk a little bit about that in extra time. But but anyway. Right. I just wanted to just follow on from that because we haven't bottomed out whether the vaccines we're using at the moment, the so-called vaccines, the experimental vaccines, are they, are they safe? We don't know. But you're now pointing out that, whoa, there's a lot more to come. So if I just bring this up on screen, you've got uh, an image from the Department of Veterinary Medicine uh, at Cambridge, a professor, Jonathan Luke uh, Heaney. Um, tell us the significance of this one. Well, apparently we have a new vaccine coming. This is going to be for all variants, so it won't matter which variant it is, this vaccine will, will deal with it. And this is coming from a spin-off from Cambridge. Um, I only saw it announced in the last couple of days. Um, it's a company called DioSinovax, and this is headed by Jonathan Heaney, who happens to be a vet. He's got um, access to a biosecurity lab three, and this is mRNA. This is studying mRNA. And now CEPI have invested 32 million. And let's remember that the UK have invested a quarter of a billion into CEPI. And what they say they want to do is investigate disease X. So as well as bringing out a vaccine for every variant you can possibly imagine anytime soon, again, in Cambridge, in that golden triangle, we've, we've now got um, investigations for disease X. So this is one to watch out for. So the vaccine agenda is very much still going on underneath everything that's going on in Ukraine. And we've got Moderna, who are setting up a new research and development center. I'm presuming that will be in Cambridge too. It's in the Golden Triangle. So mRNA manufacturing is coming to the UK. Right. And, and we will be expanding on this in extra. Um, sorry, go ahead. Brian. Well, I was just going to say uh, thank you for that. And what we're really saying to our audience is whatever the distraction over Ukraine, the damage, the sickness, the destruction to people in UK as a result of the vaccines, the deaths is still being, I'm going to use the term, covered up by the very agencies that are supposed to be protecting the safety of us all. Um, Alex, uh, we literally five minutes on this if you could at most uh, so let's but, but this is a really important story so let's uh, mention it uh, what's going on in new zealand a week ago today mike uh, the camp uh, at uh, wellington of those who were uh, camping out wanting to um, express how they felt about being shut out of society by jacinda ardern's covid tyranny was finally raided. Uh, the BFD, uh, a website which cheekily calls itself your one source of truth, because of course, Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern said with a straight face, we are your single source of truth at the government. They report it as the tyranny is upon us all. So this was on the 2nd of March, it happened on the 3rd, Cam Slater reported it. Cam writes, uh, yes, Cam Slater writes, yesterday was the dawning of a new, more violent era by the Ardern regime. The tyrant deployed the strong arm of her jackbooted police thug who used tear gas, pepper spray, pepper spray, batons, riot shields, rubber bullets, by the way, they're the size of your fist, sonic weapons and fire hoses on peaceful protesters on the ground of parliament. The Canberra parliament, federal level in Australia, has now had a confirmation back to Mr. Speaker that sonic weapons were used there as well. Um, Jacinda Ardern goes on to say, "We well, police expected hostility, but it's, quote, another thing entirely to witness it because she turns up heroically on the scene to, to show her shock and uh, at, at the plebs revolting 
extreme violence, as has been mentioned. It looks like agents provocateurs, as in uh, Ottawa, were sent in on the final day of peaceful protests uh, just to make sure that there was enough of a casus belli to send the skullcrackers in. Uh, Cam Slater's conclusion is Jacinda Ardern caused this when she created two classes of citizens. She cut the unvaxxed out of society, cost them their jobs, their careers and their businesses. We're going to see some silent footage for just a few seconds now of what happened in the aftermath. Uh, the camp ended up burning, as usual in the fog of war, in this case uh, an undeclared civil war in the, in the, in the Five Eyes country. Who knows who started what burning, but uh, it's pretty distressing to see. Uh, one social media post points out, and we'll just put this on screen for a moment so that uh, people can read the um, the post uh, and freeze the screen for themselves. But the social media point points out, the, the post points out that within 10 days, the protesters uh, in New Zealand outside Parliament managed to have an admin tent, a first aid tent by qualified doctors and nurses uh, who were out of their job in the healthcare system, schooling for the children led by qualified teachers uh, and uh, uh, they had churches, they had a timeout tent to deal sensitively with uh, problem children. They had a feeding team, they had a security team, they had a rubbish collecting team, they had their own drainage, they had uh, su supplies of coffee, they had a laundry tent, they had a yoga tent, they had a massage tent, etc., etc. They've achieved more in 10 days than we what was achieved by the government in two years. Now let's listen to two brief clips of rightly emotional New Zealand women talking about what Jacinda Ardern has done, because New Zealand can't be forgotten simply because Canada and Australia are bigger countries. The first is a lady who's founded a new party called the Outdoors Party, and her name is Sue Gray. What a terrible day in New Zealand history. I'm sitting outside Wellington Hospital, spent the last few hours in there with Alan, Today, and you hope he might get one tomorrow. Might have to wait a few days. Nobody knows. It's just the most extraordinary, bizarre situation. I just can't believe this would ever happen in New Zealand. Just, just want to thank everybody that's been so kind. He's been asked to talk on TV, but he's really not up to it at the moment. So I'm sure he'll talk when he's ready, but at the moment he's been sitting there, he's had no food all day. And just wanted to update everyone and thank you for all your care. And just to say the police brutality has put him in hospital with a badly fractured hip. I'm just going to go now. Thanks, guys. 
So, so Alex, just, just summarise that briefly, if you could. Yes. Uh, what, the second video? No, this one. This one here is Sue Gray talking about a gentleman who really needed to go for an operation after the brutality encountered on the site. So I know it was a bit faint for some people to to, to hear the words of, but uh, you know it's it's just the degree of, of upset that she had about this the speed and the intensity of the police clear up operation to get them all out, and she didn't really believe that could ever happen in New Zealand. Uh, the second clip, which is briefer, is a lady called Mel who uh, is interviewed by a passing uh, outdoors journalist on what she thinks of the whole political system in New Zealand, government and official opposition. And I think it's uh, more of an inspiring one because towards the end, the lady recovers her determination. So it's not just another sobbing clip, it's actually got a purpose to it. Take that moment. How can you do this to the people of your country? How can you do this to us all? You should feel ashamed. This is not how you treat people. This is not how you create a healthy environment. Not once have you talked to us about health and how to stay well. Not once have you acknowledged the harm that is happening to people, to families, that people are forced out of their livelihoods and out of their careers and can no longer put food on the table. People have lost their homes. The impact on relationships, you are tearing the heart and soul out of this country. And I have no respect for you whatsoever. Not one person in this building deserves my vote, and not one person in that building will get it. I will be looking elsewhere for a leader who actually stands tall and has the good of the people in their heart. I'm done with you. I'm done with this. I'm no longer afraid of you. Do you know I actually got to a point where I started thinking about what I would need if I was to run in the night from my home. I actually got to a point where I started thinking about what supplies I would need to buy, where we were going to go, and how we were going to get there, and how long we would have to hide for. I actually thought that. And I've stepped through that, and I will not run. I will stand and fight, and I will not see you or tolerate you doing this to us anymore. No more. And I thought, as a codicil to all that, the German author Ernst Jünger has something instructive for us to learn. The author of uh, Stahlgewitter, the well-known First World War memoir, who was implicated in the plot against Hitler in '44 as well. Jünger said, none of us can, can know today if tomorrow morning we will not be counted as a part of a group that is considered outside the law. In that moment, the civilized veneer of life changes as the state props of well-being disappear and are transformed into omens of destruction. The luxury liner becomes a battleship, or the black Jolly Roger and the red executioner's flag are hoisted on it. And of course, black and red are the colours of the Ukrainian far right as well. Um, some sobering advice there, not to run in terror, but to do what this lady Mel did in her message to Jacinda Ardern and the rest of the parliament, including the opposition members, uh, just to get out the way in favour of leaders who actually support the people. Yeah, um, Alex, thank you very much for that. Uh... Uh, report and uh, encourage our viewers to have a look at those clips again so that you can understand what the lady is saying. I could make it out, although the wind noise was very strong. But this is people getting very emotional, can't really understand what's happening. We understand what's happening because whether it's in New Zealand or Canada or UK or the USA or Germany or Holland or France, we are looking at geopolitical uh, agenda, a geopolitical agenda. 
uh, we are looking at politicians working in a cabal, which is essentially criminal in its aims and objectives. So it doesn't matter whether we look into Westminster or we look into Parliament in New Zealand, the agenda, which is malicious and vindictive, is the globalist agenda. And it's only by getting this fully exposed to most of the people in those countries are we going to put a stop to it. Happily, I see signs that starting to happen. Mm. Okay, we'll leave it there. Alex and Debbie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you to all of our audience, particularly to the audiences that we know coming over very long distances from the States or Australia, New Zealand, but also now we're getting audiences coming in from uh, Belarus, uh, Ukraine itself, and other areas in Eastern Europe, which is telling us that we're hitting the spot. So that's it for today. Um, make sure you get out and get some relaxation and don't just dwell on these subjects, uh, but take some time out for yourselves as well. Thanks very much for joining us. Bye-bye.